Uh, the scripture reading for today is uh, out of Matthew 15, uh, verses 1 through 20. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles the father and mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, What you have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy? Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. But what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone, they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. This is God's word. Thank you, Lawrence. Before we take a look at Matthew uh, this morning, I just want to draw your attention real quick to the insert that you have in your worship folder. Uh, We've been talking about this for a few weeks, but we have a conference coming up called our Life on Mission Conference. Part of our vision at Westgate, uh, our vision statement uh, is that we would be a gospel-centered community living each day on mission for Christ. And, And part of that vision with respect to living on mission, is that we want every member here to see themselves as a missionary with every sphere of life as their mission field. That's part of uh, what we are praying for, what we are seeking God for. And, you know, we often think of missions as something that that we go overseas to do or we go somewhere else to do, uh, when in reality all the world is a mission field and New England is a pretty good one. Uh, we've heard the statistics before. Uh, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, and Massachusetts are the top four least religious states in this country. Uh, only about 2% of New Englanders attend evangelical churches, churches where the word of God is believed to be the word of God and where the gospel of Jesus is preached as our only hope for salvation. Only 2%. Um, The percentage of atheists or agnostics here in Massachusetts is nearly double the national average. This is a mission field, and we want to reach it for Christ. God loves the people of New England. Christ shed his blood for the people of New England, and we want them to know that. And so the whole 
point of this conference, along with other things that we're doing as a church, is to help equip us to live in such a way as to make Christ known, as to uh, display the glory of God through the gospel of Jesus in our words, in our lives of service, and so on. And, and so I just really want to encourage you to take part in that upcoming conference. You can register for it online. We have a couple of great speakers lined up for it. I think it's going to be a very good time. Uh, we've got about 35 people from other churches already registered for it. And so it's just an exciting opportunity. So I want to personally invite you uh, to do that. Well, let's look at our passage in Matthew 15 this morning, and uh, before we do that, let's pray together. Gracious Father, we sung a moment ago a prayer asking you to speak. And Lord, we know that every time we open your word, you are speaking by your spirit, through your word, to make yourself known. And so, Lord, as we look into the scriptures this morning, we want to hear your voice, We want our hearts and our lives to be changed in that hearing, Lord. We don't just want to grow in our knowledge or our information. We want to grow in our relationship with you. We want to grow in our character of reflecting you. We want to grow in our passion for you and our passion and love for what you love, for one another, for the lost. So, Lord, be at work in each heart today as we look into your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're just joining us, uh, the Gospel of Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. That's what we've been studying through together. Uh, it's one of four Gospels that we find at the beginning in the New Testament. And the word Gospel means good news. It tells the story of the happy announcement that God, uh, of what God has done in history to to rescue his people from their sin, to reclaim this fallen and messed up world for himself, to establish his kingdom, his rightful rule over all creation, and how he is accomplishing that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So so the the Gospel of Matthew tells us the story of how God is doing that. Uh, It tells us the story of God's good news. But not everybody we've met in this Gospel has received what Jesus is doing as good news. Uh, There are several people throughout the story who have in fact opposed Jesus instead, who've even been offended by him. If you think back just a few weeks ago, we we met some of those different groups. Uh, In the end of chapter 13, when Jesus was in his hometown preaching, uh, those in his hometown, including some of his own family members, uh, were offended by Jesus and his ministry, his claim to be the fulfillment of what God is doing to rescue his people. Uh, They had a category for how God was going to work out his promises, and the little boy they watched grow up did not fit that category, and they took offense at Jesus' claims, ran him out of town. Uh, Then in chapter 14, we met Herod, who likewise took offense at the claims of Jesus because it was a threat to his own power and agenda and authority. Jesus' moral authority and power were a threat to him, and so he was offended. Well, this morning we meet yet another group who looks at Jesus, listens to him, sees his ministry, and takes offense. Uh, A group called the Scribes and the Pharisees. Now, of course, we've met them several times in this story already. The Scribes were experts in the Hebrew Scriptures, 
trans or uh, copying those scriptures and, and, and becoming experts in it. And the Pharisees were a religious order of people who set themselves apart from the rest of the Jews through a very rigorous system of piety, of spiritual uh, piety. Now, most of the scribes were also Pharisees, but not all Pharisees were scribes. Uh, and, and so they often kind of walked and worked together. And they saw themselves as the guardians and gatekeepers of God's law. You want to know what God's word, what God's law says. They were the experts. They were the gatekeepers. And so they've been uh, tailing Jesus throughout this story, following him around, challenging him and, and finding ways to test him because they saw themselves as gatekeepers. We need to measure this guy and see if he's found wanting or not. Does he really line up? Um, and so here in Matthew 15, they've come all the way from Jerusalem up to Galilee to test Jesus once again. And the subject of the quiz is what's called ritual purity. Ritual purity. Look with me at Matthew 15, verses 1 through 2. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, if, if you've got little kids, you're constantly trying to remind them to wash their hands before they eat or, or, or those kinds of things. And, you know, as parents, I must confess, we're maybe not the most consistent in that rule. But if our, if our kids have been playing outside or if they're dirty or whatever, we want them to wash their hands before mealtime. It's a good hygienic thing to do. The Pharisees were not concerned about germs here, though. That's not, you know, they weren't the germaphobe. Uh, police of the ancient world. What they're talking about is what's called ritual purity. So a ceremonial cleansing, uh, a ritual process of cleansing that makes you fit for service in God's presence. So it's the kind of cleansing we read about in the Old Testament in chapters like Exodus 30 and Leviticus 22, this ritual washing to prepare someone for service in God's presence. But their question isn't really about whether or not the disciples were following those passages in the Old Testament, Exodus 30 and the like. In fact, if you look back at those Old Testament laws, they were specifically for the priests who were serving in the temple. So they didn't apply to anyone else and they didn't have anything to do with your everyday meals. That's not what those passages were about what the pharisees wanted to know is why jesus's disciples didn't observe their official interpretation and application of those passages okay what they called the tradition of the elders for the pharisees it wasn't good enough just to have god's law you needed to have an expert opinion that told you what the law meant and how to obey it And they just happened to have at their disposal such expert advice. They were the keepers of it. An oral law, an oral tradition that was passed down from rabbi to rabbi by word of mouth. It's the same tradition that was eventually written down in the second century A.D. in what we call the Mishnah today in Judaism, which is the centerpiece of what became the Talmud, which is still seen as the authoritative document for practicing Jews today. 
So this oral law, this tradition of the elders for the Pharisees, this was the key to unlock what the Old Testament scriptures, the written law, really meant and how to obey them. So that you could understand it and be fit for service in God's presence. And anyone who ignored or rejected the key would find themselves locked out of the kingdom. That's what the Pharisees taught. And one such oral tradition uh, was to take these ritual purity passages, these laws about the, the cleansing uh, procedures that the priests would go through in preparing themselves for service in the temple, and to then apply those to other parts of life, and then judge anybody who didn't actually follow that application. Uh, and, it, and it wasn't just the washing of hands. In fact, in the, in the Mishnah, there's an entire tractate on the washing of hands, that you can read, but, but it went beyond the washing of, of hands as, as Mark uh, elaborates in his gospel. It included the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches, this whole big system of how are we going to be ritually pure, fit for God's presence. And so here, their examination of Jesus, they want to know why his disciples don't keep their official interpretation an application of God's law. Why don't they wash hands according to the tradition of the elders? Well, unfortunately for them, asking Jesus a question like that is a bit like taking a stick and poking a beehive. It's going to come and sting you quite shortly. And so Jesus answers their question with a question of his own in verse 3. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition. For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus goes straight to the heart of the issue. The hypocrisy of legalism. The hypocrisy of of legalism. Now, that word legalism is a word that Christians love to hate on, uh, even though we're far more guilty of it than we ever would like to admit. Uh, C.J. Mahaney uh, defines legalism as seeking to achieve forgiveness from God or acceptance by God through our obedience to God. Seeking to achieve forgiveness by God or acceptance by God through our obedience to God. In other words, a legalist is anyone who believes, anyone who behaves as if they can earn God's approval and forgiveness through personal performance, through my life and what I do being good enough and that's somehow going to earn God's approval and favor. And makes a lot of sense of what we're reading in these passages. Again, the subject, the question of ritual purity is all about being acceptable in God's presence, clean enough, 
holy enough to be able to to enter his presence and serve him in the temple without being scorched by his holiness? Are you acceptable or not in God's sight? The Pharisees sought to gain that acceptance through obedience to their own tradition. They sought to gain that acceptance through obedience to their own tradition. So if we work backwards through Jesus's uh, description here, through these verses, he identifies the essence of legalism, and, and that's what's wrong with the Pharisees in their question, when he applies the words of Isaiah 29 to them. This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. Their fear, their worship, their service of me is a commandment taught by men. So according to Isaiah, the problem with legalism is that it is superficial and man-centered. It's superficial and it's man-centered. First, legalism at its foundation is man-centered. It centers on what people teach and what people can accomplish rather than on what God has said and done for us. So it centers on what we can do, what we can come up and with what we think about all of that. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They elevate their own commandments, their own man-made rules to the same status as doctrine of God, to the same status as God's word. And then they use those rules to try and gain acceptance before him. Legalism is what I call spirituality from below. So so it's us trying to make our way up to God somehow, some way, rather than trusting the God who's come down to us from heaven in his son, Jesus Christ. So it's us trying to get up to God rather than trusting God who has come down to us. And because legalism focuses on those man-made rules... It is, therefore, second, superficial. It's surface only. It's a facade. It fosters an obedience that is external and hollow and and, and only surface deep. This people honors me with their lips, what you can see and hear, but their heart is far from me. They were going through the motions, keeping the rules, but it wasn't about honoring God. It was about manipulating his approval. And as long as I keep up the show and go through the rules, somehow God will be pleased by that, even if I don't mean it in my heart. It's the same thing we get after our kids for, you know. Say you're sorry. I'm sorry, you know, but mean it. Say it like you mean it. You know, we want it to be real and come from the heart. That's not what legalism asks for. Because it creates a performance-based relationship it's, it's holding the hoop up and it communicates to our kids or to others, to whatever. This is the goal. Jump through the hoop. Then you'll get the applause. Then you'll get the acceptance. Put on a good show and receive God's approval. Which means that's not real obedience, is it? It's play acting. It's play acting. It's why Jesus calls them hypocrites. That's what that word means. The play actor. Someone who who just goes through the motions but doesn't really mean it. Their worship was superficial. As Jesus describes later in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, 
which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. What a gruesome picture of our spiritual state before God when we approach him out of our own performance. That's the essence of legalism. It's superficial and it's man-centered. It makes acceptance before God a matter of my personal performance. And then it rewrites the rules so that those who have power and control can keep them while trapping everyone else in a cycle of guilt and shame and anxiety and fear and self-loathing or self-righteousness and pride when we're doing well. And it just keeps circling. To show them what he's talking about, Jesus gives them an example straight out of their own hypocritical legalism. Verses 3 through 7. So on the one hand, God's word, what's actually written in the law, commands his people to honor father and mother. The fifth commandment from Exodus 20, verse 12. And then Exodus 21:17 goes even further, stating that the punishment for breaking that command under Israel's moral code, under their law, was actually death. That's pretty serious stuff. And part of what it meant to honor your parents was to care for them in their old age. The same way they took care of you and changed your diapers, to, to not leave them, but to care for them in their old age. But the Pharisees, through their tradition, had come up with a system for avoiding the financial burden of that care while still looking like they were obeying God. They, they hijacked another law from the Old Testament about uh, contributions to the temple. And they taught that if, if you designated the money that would have gone to care for the parents, for your parents to the temple, then you were no longer under obligation to provide for your parents to help them out. Which was a system that was good for the temple. They got more money. It was good for the the Pharisees. They looked good for their generous donation. But where did it leave mom and dad? It would be kind of like, you know, if if the church were doing some sort of building project. And, uh, you know, in order to get your name on the plaque... You make some sort of, you know, gift to that. Meanwhile, mom and dad are on food stamps and are going without the health care they need and the prescriptions they need because they simply can't afford it. And then thinking God's somehow honored by that gift. Jesus tells us exactly what he thinks about that kind of gift. Both before he gives the example and after he concludes the example. If you look at verses 3 and then 6 the surrounding point of the example he gives. Verse 3, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Notice in both of those verses, the contrast between the tradition of men and the word of God. Not only have the Pharisees added to God's word by narrowing its obedience and application to their own little system, they've actually voided God's 
word in the process. They have removed the power of God because they've replaced God's word. They've voided its power to save and to change and to transform. They've emptied it and nullified it, which is what we do when we replace the word of God with our own words, with our own traditions, our own official interpretations and applications. When we elevate human tradition to the same status or even above God's revealed word. Legalism is man-centered and superficial. It ignores God's word. It often adds to God's word in order to create a system wherein we can try and manipulate his favor through our obedience. And that description, you know, we, we read this passage and we're like, you Pharisees, you should know better. That description describes what many of us grow up experiencing in the church. For all the things we love to say about the Pharisees. This is very much what what some people grow up experiencing. This idea that that if I'm going to be in the right with God, it's somehow up to me to keep the rules and put on a good show, at least so that nobody gets after mom and dad for my behavior and so on. And we think that that's what Christianity is. And those on the outside looking in see us running around anxiously, you know, judging others who, who mess up and, and in order to try and keep up and keep the rules so that we look good. And that's what they think Christianity is then too. A man-made religion, which is just about keeping the rules. That's not the message of Christianity though, is it? That's not what Jesus is talking about. That is not the good news of the gospel. Tim Keller reminds us, legalism says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says, I'm accepted by grace through Jesus, therefore I obey. It's a subtle difference, but it makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? Legalism is, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. My obedience and performance is the basis for being accepted in God's sight. But the gospel says, I'm accepted by God's grace through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And, and my faith in him, I'm accepted by grace, therefore I obey. My obedience is a fruit of a, tra- of a changed heart. It, it's a response uh, of joy and gratitude and love and affection and loyalty that comes from having been delivered from my sin. Not from having made it up to God. It's based on grace. It's not my performance. It's Christ's performance for me. And so it's based on grace, on being given something wonderful, even though I deserve something utterly terrible. I deserve judgment for my sin. That's the bottom line of what I can offer God. God gives me forgiveness and new life through faith in Christ who took the penalty of that sin in my place. He paid that price in full. That's the gospel. So, so the problem with legalism is not just that we put our words in place of God's words, but that when we do so, we do it at the expense of the living word, Jesus, and what he's accomplished for us. It's only through Jesus, his life in our place, his sacrifice in our place, Only through Jesus as our great high priest 
who kept Exodus 30 and Leviticus 22 and all those things perfectly, that we then can draw near to God, as Hebrews puts it, with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There is a real spiritual cleansing, and it comes not from water and such. It comes through Jesus in his blood. It comes through faith in Christ. And that's what Jesus elaborates on in verses 10 through 20. What does a real purity in God's presence look like? After he rebuked the scribes and the Pharisees uh, for their hypocritical legalism, verse 10 says, Jesus called the people to him. He turns and addresses everyone else around. He called the people to him and he said, Hear and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. It's kind of an interesting picture. Talking about vomit or spit or, you know, what is, what, what is it that makes us ritually unclean coming out of our mouth? Peter wonders the same thing. He doesn't get the picture either. So he asked Jesus in verse 15, can you explain this parable to me? Uh, And Jesus explains in verse 16, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. It's the difference between the external and the internal, between the superficial and between what comes from the heart. In contrast to the Pharisees' version of ritual purity, which was man-centered, superficial, surface only, just keep up the rules on the outside, never mind what's going on inside, Jesus says that true ritual purity, true purity that's acceptable in God's sight, is a matter of the heart and accords to God's word. He continues in verse 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander. These are what defiles a person. But to eat with unwashed hands defiles no one. That's not the point. It's not the point. See, the opposite of legalism is not license. See, we can root along as God, as Jesus kind of condemns legalism, and then we kind of think, whew, now I can do whatever I want, right? That's not what Jesus is saying. The opposite of legalism is not license, the, the, the ability to do what I want. Jesus cares about holiness and obedience. One of the biggest mistakes we can make when we bash on legalism is then to is to say that that legalism and obedience are the same thing. And so if Jesus is against legalism, you must be against obedience too. We don't see that here, do we? He called the Pharisees out for breaking the fifth commandment back in verse 4. And then he mentions numbers 6, 7, 8, and 9 in verse 19. Lists off another set of instructions from the Ten Commandments. Obedience to God's word matters. But it's not the basis of our acceptance before him. It's the fruit of our acceptance. It's not the basis, it's the fruit. 
And it's not about whether we can go through the motions on the surface, but whether we're obeying God from the heart. It is the righteousness that surpasses the scribes and Pharisees. If you think back to chapter 5, verse 20, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is describing what does righteousness really look like in God's sight? What kind of righteousness is he after for his people? A righteousness that comes from the heart, from a heart that has been changed by the gospel of Jesus. Again, we use this illustration sometimes. It's the difference between a Christmas ornament hanging on a tree and a piece of fruit that actually grows from the tree. One of them is manufactured, glitzy and, and looks good you know, from across the room. It's manufactured. It's fake. It doesn't come from the tree. It's hung on the tree. It's manipulated. The other actually comes from within the tree. And, and so they may look the same from the street. Jesus knows the difference. God knows the difference. And he's looking for an obedience that actually comes from the heart. It comes from a heart changed by his grace. You know, most legalists don't set out to become legalists. You know, we often slip into legalism because... We care about God's word. We actually want to see God honored. It's just that we've forgotten that our acceptance before God is a matter of grace through faith. And that that's true, not just for how we become a Christian, but for how we live the entire Christian life. It's all of grace. The gospel is a message of grace. As Jerry Bridges puts it so beautifully. Your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need for God's grace. The gospel of Jesus is from grace to grace. The whole thing. That's the whole Christian life. But when we forget that grace and we still care about God's word and holiness, we slip into a legalism that makes everything a matter of performance. And so we come to God's word, wanting to know and walk with God, but, but kind of overwhelmed with this anxiety and this insecurity of just where am I at with God right now? Because I know what my week was like, and it wasn't good. And so, and I'm not sure if I'm keeping up. Am I keeping his word just so? Am I performing well enough? I don't want to mess up. I don't want to miss out on God's blessings. And, and so we, we, we have this anxiety as we come before him. And so to dispel that anxiety, one of the things that's easy to do is, is to just bring a little more clarity to what God's word actually means and how we actually obey it. Then I can kind of measure how I'm doing. And one of the most common ways that we do that is we, we take a biblical principle and then we reduce it to a single practice. This is what I mean. So you take a biblical principle such as sexual purity and fidelity in marriage. The Bible teaches those things. But then you reduce it to a single practice, a certain kind of dating or courtship before marriage. And if you want to honor God with respect to purity and marriage and be blessed by him, then you need to follow these rules for how to go about getting to know someone romantically. Because if you do something different, we don't know where that will go. We're not sure how that one will end up with you. And we'll judge you if you try a different way. 
Because obviously, if you're not following this single practice, you don't care about that biblical principle. See how that works? Or you take the biblical principle of self-control and sobriety. The Bible teaches those things. But then you reduce it to a single practice of avoiding any and all alcohol. This is a favorite of some of our generations. If you care about honoring God and self-control in your witness, you will never touch a drop. Because if you do, you don't know where what that could lead to, you know, the slippery slope and all. Now, there are really good reasons that some people avoid alcohol at all costs. And drunkenness is clearly sinful in Scripture. There are lots of reasons why we might not touch it. But to make a blanket rule about avoiding it altogether is to add a command to Scripture that's simply not there. That makes some of us uncomfortable. It sounds spiritual. It's legalism. And we're afraid if we don't add that command, somebody's going to accidentally cross the line and fall off the cliff. And so we're just going to add one more command over here as a fence, right? But but that fence might not be secure enough, and so we'll add another one. And we don't trust the gospel of Jesus to do its work. We feel we've got to step in and clarify what God has left out. It's no different than what the Pharisees did, is it? With their tradition of the elders. Here's the law, but here's the official interpretation and application of that law. And if you don't follow that, you clearly don't love God, do you? And we could keep going with examples. I mean, it's painful, but it's good. I mean, alcohol and dating are the easy ones to pick on. You know, what about politics? You know, you take a, a biblical principle, you know, fill in the blank, and you reduce it to allegiance to a single particular political party. And then we evaluate people's spirituality based on that. What about our devotional or our Bible study habits? How much time do you spend in the Word every day? Now, the Bible, biblical principle, we need God's Word. We need to feed on the Word of God regularly to hear from Him and to grow from Him. But how do I know if I'm doing that enough? Well, wouldn't it be easy if we just kind of set up some guidelines about how many minutes each day or or something like that, and then we begin to evaluate our spirituality and our affection for God on whether we're checking the box off of spending that much time. What about church involvement? How many activities, how many boards, and so on. What about schools? You know, there's one. If you truly care about raising your kids to love Jesus and preparing them for life in this ungodly world, biblical principle, then you will send them to a private Christian school or you will homeschool them, single practice. But if you really care about reaching the lost and teaching your kids to reach the lost, biblical principle, then you'll put them in public school because how else are they going to get to know non-believers if you don't? Single practice. And the, the problem is not always with the practices. Those are good things. Those are great things. You know, there's nothing more spiritual about private versus public versus home. Those are three great options that each family wrestles with. You know, what's 
what's good for our children in our context. The problem is when we elevate our tradition to the same status as God's word, and then we wonder why so-and-so doesn't keep the tradition. I mean, do they even know Jesus? I mean, Practices matter. Our holiness matters. Jesus is interested on whether that holiness comes from the heart and whether or not it accords to God's word. Has your heart been changed by the gospel of Jesus? Do you recognize the sinfulness of your heart? Have you renounced that sin and come to Jesus in faith? Is your only claim to righteousness the righteous life of Jesus on your behalf? Is your only hope for forgiveness the fact that Jesus has paid the debt you owed in full on the cross? Or are you still trying to win God's approval and forgiveness through your performance? Legalistic purity is easier because I'm in control. It's not real. It's not real. It's superficial and man-centered. True purity that God accepts, that God smiles on, is gospel-centered and comes from the heart. That's a hard pill for the legalist to swallow. Because it means I don't really have the control that I thought I had, and I'm not really as good as I kind of thought. It means that my very simple system of knowing where I'm at with God or where someone else is at with God, go through these motions, get these results, it means that doesn't work anymore. For the Pharisees, it meant that their entire system of spirituality was bankrupt. They who claimed to be gatekeepers of the law found themselves to be in violation of the very law they claimed to keep. That made them mad. They didn't like being told that. It's kind of funny. In verse 12, the disciples are a little concerned that Jesus isn't quite reading their reaction very well. Do do you know the Pharisees were offended when you said that? Pretty sure that was the point. Jesus doesn't have much tolerance for legalism. He says in verses 13 and 14, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted, will be rooted up. If you try and plant your own kingdom based on your own word or over top of God's word, God's going to come along, he's going to rip it out, he's going to throw it away. And so Jesus says to his, his disciples, let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. This is not going to end well for them. Don't follow them. Don't follow the lead of legalists. Follow those who point you to Jesus. Who point you again and again to the full truth of the gospel that sin really is sinful because God really is holy. But grace really is sufficient because Jesus' blood really was enough. The gospel is offensive to legalists. Because it means we're not in control. We, we, aren't, we aren't as good as we thought. But to the broken, to the poor in spirit, 
to the sin sick and the downcast, to those with no hope in the world, to those who know that because of what's in their heart and what their hands have done and what their mouths have said, they have no business entering God's presence, to those whose only prayer before a holy God is, have mercy on me, a sinner, to sinners like you and me, the gospel is the greatest good news we'll ever hear. Legalism says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says, I'm accepted by grace through Jesus Christ, therefore I obey. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. Do we believe that? Does that set our hearts free? Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to Enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. So we have confidence to enter God's presence, not by our works, not by our performance, but by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, pure heart. In full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's true ritual purity, true acceptance in God's sight. It's through the gospel. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let's keep following Jesus in joyful obedience. For he who promised is faithful. Let's pray. Gracious Father, how we need to hear you tell us of the good news and grace of Jesus again and again. Lord, our hearts are so prone to wander into legalism. It feels safe and comfortable, like we're in control. But that's the problem, Lord. If we're in control, what a miserable mess we make of life. What could we possibly offer you to atone for our sin if we're in control? God, thank you that you are in control, that you are God, and that you have done everything necessary for unworthy sinners like us to be accepted in your presence by sending your Son, Christ. Lord, let us marinate in that truth this morning. Let us just dwell in the beauty of your grace. And may that produce a righteousness and obedience that flows from the heart, God. May we respond to your grace with genuine worship. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.